A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. Come into the reading room, all you lovers of language and literature. This is the place for those of us who believe that reading is essential as we seek to rise above the ordinary. And the reading room contains a host of extraordinary people, leading lights of the written word. Authors, literary critics, columnists and ideas people will tantalize your minds with their wordplay while discussing the ideas and worldviews that form our wonderful literary milieu. Come step into a world of magic, the place of undiscovered treasures, a room of reading. And a very warm welcome to one of the hottest places in town. Yes, it's the Reading Room and I'm Melinda Walker. Making it really heat up in this space today is somebody who I have been oh, a fangirl of ever since I read his very, very first book. And that's the message he got from me saying, hey, I would love to talk to you because I'm a huge fangirl. And to my surprise, the gentleman said yes. All the way from Cape Town, we have Dion Mayer in the reading room with me today. Thank you so much for agreeing to have a chat. Hi, Melanie. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure and a privilege. And thanks for reading my books. I, uh, I knew there was one fan out there. <laughs> There's a lot of fans out there. Not to blow my own trumpet, but when I my gardening book launched and we had this whole thing um, at the, the place where they did the launch here in Johannesburg, all I was caring about was the fact that one of my journalist friends had actually got a copy of your latest book and had brought it to the launch for me. Oh, and so she took a picture of me with your book at my launch, which I thought was a much better idea. Oh, I love your books. No, I mean, um, I think that, you know what it is, is that, You've created a character, and I know, I know you don't just write about Benny Chrysal, but for many people, it's so lovely to have that continuity of having a character that we can really engage with, that we get excited. And I mean, that, that's one thing with majority of the people whose books I read, I will keep going back to them because I think it's like John Sanford with Lucas Davenport and, of course, Lee Child with Jack Reacher. Your books with Benny Chrysal, because he is so South African, it just makes us want to read them more. And he's, uh, I think, like up there with all of those other Avatar characters. Where did he come from? Benny was an accident, really. Uh, my first translated book, which was my second novel in Afrikaans, the English title, uh, Dead Before Dying, my protagonist, uh, Machu Bear, uh, he was slowly working up to have his first necking with a, with a lovely young lady in, I think, two or three years. But I knew in terms of the book structure that it was too early for him to have that sort of growth as a character, to have that, you know, in his character arc that was just too early. So I had to spoil mm. his fun one way or another. And I didn't give it a lot of thought. I thought, well, I'll have one of the one of his other colleagues, policemen colleagues, walk in on him and I'll, I'll create uh, this character as he's, he's got to be drunk to be able to, to do what he has to do to spoil the mm. protagonist's fun. And when I write and I know that it's going to be a major character, I spend a lot of time thinking about the name and the surname. For me, the feeling of the name and the surname has to be exactly right for the specific character. Sometimes it takes me a couple of days to find the right name. I, I have these phone books that I keep 
from back when we still had phone books just to have surnames to browse through. So when I created this character, this drunk cop, I thought, oh, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time thinking about this. I'm going to name him after the son of one of my favorite teachers in high school. Because in my head, I sort of saw someone that looked faintly like uh, Benny Grisel. Um, one of my favorite high school teachers was Mr. Ben Grisel, and he had a son, Benny. And we knew each other fairly well. And I thought, well, he sort of looks like that Benny Grisel. I'll just call him Benny Grisel, and it'll be a bit of fun with the real Benny Grisel uh, too. And was he quite chuffed about the fact that you'd named your character after him? I, I, I will tell you a story about that in a second. Uh, so anyway, so I, I created this character. I had him walk in, and he was a lot of fun to write about. And then a few pages later, I realized, well, I, I sort of need that guy back again. And as I wrote the book, this Benny Grisel character, and maybe it's because he he was colorful. Maybe it was because... He was uh, not your normal protagonist. I realized mm-hmm. I was having a lot of fun writing about him. And by the end of that book, he had become a much bigger and more major character than I ever anticipated. And I thought, well, you know, this was, this was a real pleasure to write about him. So maybe I'll bring him back. If I can find a story that, that suits him, I will, I will definitely pursue him as a protagonist sometime in the future. Getting back to your question about the real Benny Grisel, he loved the idea, and uh, he tells the story. He lives out in Bloberg Strand uh, on the West Coast, and he, he loves telling the story that every December when there's a new uh, novel out, he walks on the beach and all these lovely bikini-clad ladies uh, are on the beach reading my book. And then he goes up and he, he says, it's the great, greatest pickup line in the world. Hi, my <laughs> name is Benny Grisel. And apparently it works for him. I love it. <laughs> I'm going to have to go down there and, and stalk him somewhere on the beach after I'm finished with stalking with you. But that, that's an interesting thing. I mean, you, you're talking about creating the characters. And this is one of the things that I see a lot of people when, when you see reviews of your books is the fact that so many people love the idea that your books are about your characters. And for many people, as I said, that is what it is about. It's not just about moving the story along so much. Your characters will do that. But the fleshing out of your characters is just so on point that it just makes it so believable, especially for South Africans and in a South African context. I'm very happy to hear that. Uh, you know, what for me, story is paramount. I always start with the story first because I think if the story works, then uh, it makes life a lot easier. But as you start, then the, you ask, you start asking yourself, what would my characters do when they are confronted with whatever is happening in the story? And it also helps that I. I try to understand my characters with every major character that I create. I don't do uh, character sketches on paper, but I will think a lot about where they come from, what was their upbringing, where did they grow up, what were the circumstances, what were those major psychological events in their lives that shaped them and made them uh, into who they are today. With mm. policemen and women, it gets more interesting because through the years, I've done a lot of research. I've spoken to a lot of detectives. Uh, as a newspaper reporter, I uh, did crime as a beat as well. So I, I know that environment. And I also know that, especially in South Africa, our uh, policemen and women are 
plagued by uh, post-traumatic stress disorder simply because of the crime scenes that they visit and the things that they see and the, the people that they, uh, they have to chase and catch. So you have to ask yourself, how would each of my characters cope with this? Benny Chrysler, for instance, that's the reason why he drinks. Is It's, it's mm. a softening of the PTSD. Von Cupider, on the other hand, for him it's easier and he, he jokes about everything. He doesn't take things as serious. So you have to ask yourself as the writer in, with every character uh, who they are and how would they specifically react to whatever is, is put to, that you as an author put in front of them. So, I mean, for you though, when you're writing, do you often think, you know, everybody's expecting you to bring out another Benny Chrysler book? Okay. Do you feel that sometimes you want to go and create a book about somebody else, about something completely different? Or are you quite happy carrying on with Benny? We're quite happy with you carrying <laughs> on with Benny. I have to tell you that. Okay. <laughs> no, I've, I've always, it's, I suppose it's an interesting story. When I started writing, I was very committed not to write a series because I was always worried that once you start having a single protagonist or maybe a, a, an ensemble of, of characters, then that's going to determine which stories you use. And I, I've always believed and I still believe that story is the most important thing. If you have a really interesting, enthralling story, uh, then tell that and then you go find characters who, who fit that story. Hmm. But a strange thing sort of happens. You know, publishers are very keen on series because they know that series sell better. Uh, readers love series because they there's a certain familiarity and a love for the character and an investment in that character's journey. So slowly but surely, the pressure from readers and publishers start mounting. And then uh, you just happen to find more stories for those characters that you've created. But I think that for me, that was a, a very organic journey in terms of, of, of being a writer. I, I never felt that it was forced. And then when I did find mm. a story that I wanted to tell that was not going to be a Benny and Vaughn story, something like Trackers or Fever, for instance, where I knew from the beginning that there was just not going to be space for these characters in these stories, I was confident enough that the, the stories themselves were strong enough to still carry the book. Uh, Fever was very interesting because it was so different to anything else that I've done. And I knew there was a huge risk in, in losing. You know, you, you spend a whole career building your readership, reader by reader, book by book. And to do something that different, there's always the danger of, of losing some of them. Uh, but then, I don't think you'd lose anybody, dear. Let's be real. <laughs> no, I mean, there, there were there were a, a certain percentage of readers who who did not like uh, Fever because it wasn't crime fiction. Mm. But you know, after that, I went back to Benny again, and I think I, those people forgave me. But uh, as an author, you need to continue growing. You, I, one of my biggest fears is to stagnate as a writer. Uh, to do mm. the same thing over and over again. And I think from time to time, you need to do something just different, just to get the creative juices flowing again, to challenge yourself, to make you focus, work harder, uh, try harder to to really deliver a, a good book. 
Okay, so let's take it back a few years. Um, when did, was it that you realized that this is what you wanted to do? I mean, was it something that you'd always wanted to do? You said you worked as a, a reporter, and I know that you worked and wrote for BMW at some stage. So it, it kind of like have one of those careers where you're going from things to thing. But now it's just full-time writing. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So where did you decide this is what it is? I don't want to do any of that stuff anymore. Well, I think when I realized that uh, I could pay my kids' university fees through writing income only. You know, it was such a strange journey for me. I grew up in Clarksdorpe in, in, in the Northwest province. Uh, it's a gold mining town where being an author was just never an option because there was no frame of reference. I didn't know any authors. Authors were very smart people who smoked pipes and had long beards and, you know, worked at universities. <laughs> and and I, I come from a blue-collar background. I grew up in a, in a real blue-collar environment. So for me, I never entertained the idea, the dream of becoming an author because I just didn't think that it was possible. Um, mm. I loved reading from a young age. I, I'm still a voracious reader. And at high school, I loved writing stories. But, you know, it's one thing to write, to, to love writing as a kid at school, uh, but it's a totally different thing to think that this c could become a career. But that urge to, to, to write, that, that need to, to tell stories, because that's really what mm -hmm. I think I, I am. I'm a, I'm a storyteller. I'm, I, I'm, I don't think of myself as an author. It's, it's such a formal thing to be, oh, I'm an author. I, I mean, I, I love telling stories, and I, I've always loved that. And that urge and that need never left me. When I was in my 20s, I tried writing a novel, and I, I knew it just wasn't any good. But I, I say that to demonstrate that I still wanted to tell stories. But, you know, life happens, and you get married, and you have children, and you have a career, and uh, I, I was in a journalist, and then I went into advertising, and it was only when I wrote a little TV script in advertising. It was, it was a we did stuff for breakfast TV back then. It was only the SABC back then, and there was a breakfast TV program. I can't remember the name. And I wrote a series of little mini dramas as an advertising vehicle. And I sort of rediscovered, and I was 34, 35 years old, and I sort of rediscovered my absolute love for telling fictional stories. And that got me going again. I was also a single parent with two kids in, in my care back then, a single breadwinner. So I thought, well, maybe I can earn a bit of extra money by, by writing short stories. I thought, let me start with short stories because uh, there's going to be a certain learning curve. So let me see if I can if I can do it, let me see if my fiction writing is any good. So I started writing short stories, sent them to magazines, I started selling, and it took me a couple of years before I, I had the courage to, to start a, a first novel. But even then, you know, this was just after the end of apartheid, crime fiction in Afrikaans specifically, but I think in, in the South African context was totally unknown. So the books didn't sell very well in the beginning, and I still didn't entertain the possibility of becoming a full-time writer. It was only after I got lucky with a with a wonderful agent, Isabel Dixon, in London, and uh, she sold my books to the British and the Germans and the French, and I started making a, a decent income from that, that I thought, well, maybe there's this potential. But even back then, I think even after my first three or four books, um, I thought, well, this is this is 
good income, but I can't leave my day job. You know, it's just too precarious. Mm. And uh, I made sure, I, th- I can't remember exactly, I think it was after my fifth novel that I realized that the book's continue to sell overseas and the income is of such a standard that if I build up a big enough nest egg just to make sure that if something bad happens that I'll be okay, then I can start thinking about becoming a full-time author. So it took a long time. Author, yes. Storyteller. But that's that's the thing in the Afrikaans dynamic. You, you very much have the story for tellers. And I remember like with Danny Pretorius, he also used to go out, like a lot of Afrikaans people who would go out and they just were the most amazing raconteurs. And that's what it's about. There is this this history of storytelling in the older generation, which doesn't seem to have translated all that much. And I think that's where a lot of younger people's imaginations will have come from. And I'm just wondering if we're going to see a slackening off of like really intelligent and thought-provoking writing coming through from the younger generation because they don't have that same input where we'd sit around the fire and listen to stories. And I'm sure that's pretty much how you grew up. Yeah, so, absolutely. yeah, hopefully the, the, from the Afrikaans' point of view, I mean, it, it is. South Africa has a very, very different thing. And I'm, I'm so amazed by the amount of wonderful writers there are coming out, and especially in the crime fiction things. I mean, I just think of Lauren Bjorkus and uh, Margie Orford and yourself and, and um, Mike Nickel. The four of you, those are the four greats for me here in South Africa. I know there are more, but that's the way it goes. <laughs> but now, how many books have you actually written all in all? I was trying to work out, not just in Afrikaans. I mean, did you do all the translations from the English, the Afrikaans ones into English? No, no. Do you I, have somebody else doing I that? I have Laura Seekers. Uh, she's out of Grafreinet. Uh, we've been working together for a long time now. Madeleine, the great, late great Madeleine van Bouillon translated my first three or four books into English. And then when, mm-hmm. when Madeleine passed, uh, Laura became our translator. For me, it would be incomprehensible to translate my own work. I mean, it's, uh, it's hard enough to write the book once to write it again <laughs> would be really. <laughs> Very hard. And and then who does the translations into German and French and all of that? And and the question is, is any of the story lost because of the very true South Africanisms, which would be so relevant to us here reading it at home, as opposed to people overseas reading it? Uh, the the other the Afrikaans is used in the translation of the French, the German, the Dutch, uh, and I'm forgetting one. Oh, and the Norwegian, strangely enough. People who, mm-hmm. who can speak Afrikaans, who understand Afrikaans, who translate it. Some of them also use the English translation. But in every country, every publisher uh, has their own specialized, specializing translators. And these translators are so professional and so great. And they all correspond with me when, when they start, you know, they have emails and emails of questions. We will sometimes uh, have online meetings to discuss. I will sometimes give them stuff to read, to give them a background to what the book is about. But, um, uh, you know, I, th- I think they, they all do a sterling job. Is anything lost in translation? I don't think so. Um, obviously, if, if I write in Afrikaans and I use, Va- and Vaughan Cupido speaks in the Cape Flats vernacular, then only people who can understand Afrikaans will have any appreciation of that. Mm. It's impossible mm. to translate that. There are, there might be some South African in jokes or South, some South African context that South Africans will get more and better than, than overseas readers. 
But I think story and, and the humanity of characters, those are international. You know, that works in any culture, in any language. And if you can get that right, then nothing gets lost in translation. You know, if we read a Michael Connolly or a Lee Child that's set in America, I'm sure there are local nuances that are lost on South African readers, but the stories and the characters are so interesting that we don't even know what we're missing. So I, it's something that I don't worry about. Uh, my job is to try and write a story that is gripping, that will enthrall readers from the beginning to the end. And if I can do that, then I'm quite happy that they will travel well. Now, when it comes to writing the story, okay, do you plan the entire book ahead of time? Do you know how it's going to finish, how it's going to go from the beginning to the end? Or do you make it up as you go along chapter by chapter? Because I know there's two, there's all these different ways yeah. of writing. Which is your style? It's sort of a mixture of the two. I, you know, it takes, I'm a very slow worker and a slow writer, especially the first half of the book. But I, I will spend a lot of time thinking about the story. Often, mostly two or three ideas come together and then I realize, well, this, this is a cool story that gets me all excited and passionate. And then I will have a very broad idea of where I should start and one potential ending. Mm. But I'm also happy that if that's not the final ending, then that's great too. Writing is, I mean, it's a marathon, it's a process. You know, and just the research. Uh, when, when you know what the book is going to be about and you start doing research, you unearth so many great nuggets of information that that multiplies your creative choices. It gives you so many more choices to what you're going to do in the book. And that research starts a few months before I start the book, and it ends when I write the last page. So there's always more ideas that you're confronted with that you can choose from. 50% of my books ended more or less the way I... I thought from the very beginning and 50% had totally different endings. Uh, the American author E.L. Doctorow said uh, for him and, and for me it's very much the same thing is uh, you know where you're going to start. I think that's the very first thing and you know in what direction mm. you're going but it's a lot like driving in a car at night. You know, I, you know, I know I'm going north and I'll end up, let's say, somewhere near Pretoria. But all I can see is what is illuminated by the headlights, which is the next two or three chapters. And you, you discover the story on your way to this destination that you have in mind. You sort of discover the story in that process. And sometimes that destination changes early in the book, halfway through, almost near the end. But you can always see the next few or chapters ahead and I that's the way that I love writing for me that's exciting and it's it's interesting uh, and it also keeps my creative choices open if I had to plan the book on paper before I started writing I would feel blocked by that uh, there are no other options I, I love to keep my options open and determine in the writing process if this is working or not 
No constraints. No constraints. It's a lekker road trip, ne? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I, I love that analogy. I'm actually sitting there and immediately I'm going off through the desert now on the roads left, right. less traveled, seeing what comes up and going around that corner, checking it out. I think that's a lovely way to, to be writing. So, I mean, it's a lot of, not just researching on facts, but researching on life. I mean, do you ever go into, like, if you hear about a character um, of somebody, you know, might have been a historical character or even just somebody that you happen to have bumped into, do you use them as kind of models for characters that you're going to create as well? Or are these just people that kind of inhabit your head? No, you obviously, you refer to what you know. And I, I love talking to people. I love hearing people's stories. I think the, the first thing, and it's something that I, I learned over the years, I think the more the author has lived, the more you've experienced of life as a human being, I think the better you can relate to your characters because the chances are that you've been confronted with certain of the things that the characters are confronted with, whether it's poverty, whether it's emotional stress, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, falling in love or falling out of love or whatever the case may be. So just living, I think, is very important for an author to live life to the fullest so that you can have all these experiences to tap into when you're right. But secondly, talk to people. I do that as much as I can. I find people fascinating. Uh, and of course, reading, reading about psychology, trying to understand what makes people tick uh, is, is something that always fascinates me. People who, how they tick. Okay, so this is one thing. You have your very clean-cut characters like Rita, who's who's quite a clean-cut yeah. kind of guy. Yeah. He's a he's a dumb and dirty kind of guy. Yeah. Lucas Davenport, he's a pillar of the society. Yeah. But then you have people like from Scandinavia, like Harry Hole, okay, who's a kind of a more dark version, I would say, of Benny Grissel. Why is it that people really enjoy the more down on their luck characters? especially if they're the flawed heroes. Why are people so enamored of them wherever they're in the world that they come from? Because, I mean, you've got people coming from the dark, dingy kind of back corners of, of um, Nor- uh, what's it called, um, somewhere in Norway to the streets and the V&A waterfront in Cape Town. What is it that makes these people so entrancing to the reader? I think it's a combination of things. I think, first of all, most people love an underdog. If you look at um, World Cup football, for instance, uh, people have their favorite team and then they have the underdog that they, they support. I think it's a very human thing to root for someone. Mm. But I also think we are all flawed human beings. And I think readers being readers and being exposed to uh, so many things in their reading, they, they find a better connection with flawed characters because they know that that's more real and more human. And then thirdly, conflict is the mother of suspense. So if you create a character with flaws, she or he is also going to battle those flaws to to go on their journey and, and achieve what, what they hope to achieve. And I think it adds to the suspense. It adds to uh, the reader's buy-in of, of the story uh, and a more pleasurable reading experience, I think. Okay, so when is when is the next Benny book coming out? I always want to say Benny book for him. <laughs> Taking myself back to the past I'm whenever a, I hear the name Benny. I, but he, I mean, everybody right. knows that name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very happy that that is the case. I'm working very hard on a new Benny novel at the moment. Uh, we've been so busy with television and movie work in the last six months that uh, I'm way behind schedule. So I'm trying to catch up at the moment, but 
as I said, I'm not a very quick writer, so and I know that I have to take my time to to make sure that the quality is there. So at this stage, I am not at liberty to say when the next one will be available. It'll get there when it gets it, there, Melanie. Exactly. Be careful, yeah, be patient. Yeah. Let's take it a step back there. Film and television stuff. I saw that you'd had quite a few of the the stories optioned, um, not just here but also abroad, um, to be turned into TV movies or movies themselves. What is happening with that? There are so many exciting things happening at the moment, and your timing is just a little bit off. We will probably be able to make big announcements in the next month or so. But let me let me be as vague as I dare to be. There's a movie an international movie on, based on one of my books that um, has been greenlit. And, uh, can I be in it? Please, can I be in it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we can make a plan. Um, and um, we, we are going into pre-production very soon. There's a TV series that is starting pre-production next week that uh, I think I'm so excited about it. It's going to be very cool. But again, I... I I think next week they'll probably make an announcement on this, and it's, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be very exciting. And then we are working on two other series as well that hasn't been greenlit yet. We're still in the preparation phase. We're still writing the scripts and the series bible and that sort of thing. But you know, this is really a, a, a great time for for authors who have uh, intellectual property because all the streaming services, all the broadcasters are looking for. African stories that I think is the thing that excites me most is that um, a lot of these big streamers and, and broadcasters are looking at new markets to expand their subscriber base and uh, they, they've come to Africa, they've come to South Africa uh, and a lot of things are happening. I'm very, very excited for you. I think it's absolutely fantastic. But as I said, um, if you, even if you need somebody, just carry your books for you, <laughs> carry you know your pens and paper. I'm quite happy to come along and do that. I have somewhere to stay in Cape Town. That's not a problem. Um, now, <laughs> you've got so many fans all over the world, and it seems that the French are some of your biggest fans. Now, one of my very good friends who read a, a weekly podcast um, from SA People, and she's a huge fan of yours as well, she just tells me, it's so amazing. You walk into the, the train station where she's down in the south of France, and there's this big poster of you, you know, with your book. So, I mean, the French are completely, completely mad about you. And of course, then you, you got given the Chevalier des Arts et des Lettres. My, my French is awful. Um, but, but that's basically the, uh, an award for you, the Knight of Arts and Literature in France. How did that come about? And why French? I mean, are you like, you know, full on a, a, a Francophile or, or what was that all about? I, I am a, I, Absolutely adore France and the French and French cooking and the French landscape and, and, and French culture. It came about simply because I had really great editors and, and publishers in France. I think the French, as, as a matter of fact, I think most of, of Northern Europe are more inclined to read fiction from exotic locales like South Africa or South America or wherever. Uh, the Americans are not so keen. They love reading about things happening in America. But in, in Europe, uh, I think authors, especially from Africa, have a better opportunity and chance to find a publisher and to become successful. Uh, you know, the I think the essence of, of my relationship uh, with France has been through the books. They sold well. I, I think the very first literary prize I won was in France, um, and that mm. made a big difference. And the, the French readers just started supporting me, which I will be eternally grateful to them for. 
you know, and I've, I've done so many festivals there, and uh, my wife Marianne and I, we discovered Bordeaux, and we go back there every year for a month or two. Uh, we keep two bicycles there, and you know, it, and live like locals, and that that has been very special. So, um, it's been a relationship that has come a long way, and I'm just delighted with it. I'm so grateful that um, that the French read my books. Are you going to take Benny Frisel on holiday there at some stage? Well, I, I think you know, with Benny's alcohol problem and all that wine being available, I'm not sure that's <laughs> well. A the wine thing. might yeah. be problematic. Yeah, yeah. I, it's 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 always a. I, I wrote a book called uh, The Last Hunt, which happens in Paris and Bordeaux, but Benny didn't get the opportunity to go. You, you have to keep it real in, in, in those terms and realistic. Uh, when South African policemen and women investigate uh, local cases, they don't get to go overseas. So if I mm. find a story that I can take Benny and Vaughan uh, overseas, I, I will, but uh, so far I haven't. They've come to visit you when you're in Bordeaux <laughs> drinking wine. Come on, they, they need to come and see what's anyway. happened to this famous crime writer. <laughs> okay, now one last thing about France. Um, I know that in nineteen, uh, sorry, in 2021, after you got this award, that you had this whole thing that you know you're going to foster more of your ties with France and more commitments towards kind of um, improving your ties not and South African ties with France. Has that been a go-ahead thing or because of like the last two years with everybody being locked down and all this other stuff that's come up? I mean, what is happening there? How are you going to make South Africa and yourself more popular, not just in France, but around the world? Well, obviously COVID took its toll on any sort of travel uh, and any uh, ties with France. But um, we've been, I've been to two French festivals uh, this year. The one, the great one in Lyon called Quai de Polar, which is a, a, a crime fiction festival. It's one of the biggest in Europe, uh, in the beautiful city of Lyon. And we had a, a wonderful evening there where a young South African chef uh, was flown to Lyon and uh, in a restaurant. We had this wonderful evening where a Leonese a, a Bouchon a chef and a South African chef cooked together and it was a 10-dish tasting menu, one French, one South African. So just to share, and, and she cooked such wonderful uh, Western Cape traditional dishes, obviously in, in much more sophisticated fashion. So we mm. shared the South African cuisine uh, with the French. And uh, that's just one way that, you know, I, I try to strengthen the ties between South Africa and France. But just attending uh, French festivals, having French authors over here uh, and, and uh, exposing them to the South African public, supporting the, uh, the, the French consulate in Cape Town, those are the ways that I hope to improve ties between the two countries. And, and your your French accent it sounds pretty good how how good is your French itself it's it sort of comes and goes the more time we spend in France the better my French gets I had a little bit of French at school two years at school and one year at university but if you don't use it you lose it you lose yeah, it you're so, quite right uh, when whenever we're in France it sort of comes back and I can help myself and uh, but COVID did not do my French any good at all 
<laughs> it's amazing what COVID has done to so many people yeah. all over the world. Dion Mayer, thank you so very much for sharing your time with us and and your process. And I mean, you know, you're going to be my number one <laughs> writer in South Africa. I have to be honest, and I'm, I'm I'm sorry to all the others as well who I have spoken to over the years, but I think that your for me, it's always about the person that you write about, and he's one of my favorite heroes or anti-heroes, as you like to put it. So please just let us know when um, the green light things are happening, what's happening, but when we can put it all up as well. We'll splurge it all over the place, and as soon as you've got the next book, please send me a copy. <laughs> I will do that. Melanie, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege, uh, and uh, I hope to see you on set. And of course, um, we can find you on www.dionmayer.com. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. Fantastic. Thank you very much, sir. We'll catch up with you again real soon. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.